following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Amen. Well, you can turn your Bibles to Ezra 10. Uh, today, we're going to finish the book of Ezra, Lord willing. And so, it's, uh, I think this is sermon number 10, as uh, we've worked our way through this book. And, uh, and so, I hope that you've enjoyed the study. Uh, Lord willing, the plan is to start up Romans in a few weeks. There's going to be a few other things going on here for a couple weeks, but uh, we'll be doing Romans next. And uh, so, that's the plan. Uh, but, but today, we're going to finish up our study in this book of Ezra. And I hope you've enjoyed the study. I hope it's been beneficial to you. Um, I hope, for one, uh, that it has been a good opportunity for us just to expand our knowledge of, of Old Testament history, and particularly uh, kind of the, the end of Old Testament history, and, and hopefully in understanding a little bit more about Ezra, you're, you're better equipped not just to study Ezra, but, but all the books uh, that, that describe the, the exilic period and the, the post-exilic period in Israel's history. But of course, I especially hope uh, that you've been challenged and encouraged through this study to trust the Lord that God always keeps His promises. You know, when Israel went into captivity, it looked like they were done. Like, like they were never going to have a history again and all hope was lost. But God brought them home. And God was faithful to His promise. And, and I also hope that we have been challenged to obey God at all times. Because God's favor and God's blessing, God's nearness are always worth every sacrifice. And in Ezra chapters 9 and 10, the last two chapters of this book, especially emphasize that that final issue of obedience and and really tied to that, the issue of holiness. So so remember, just to back up a little bit, uh, that in Ezra 8 we saw that Ezra led a second return from Babylon to Jerusalem in 458 B.C., so roughly 80 years after the first return from the Babylonian captivity. And he came home to to teach God's law to the people and to call Israel to to obey it and to live according to His Word. And so he landed in Jerusalem, got settled, and we saw in chapter 9 that he immediately got to work preaching and teaching God's Word. And as, as, as always happens, God's Spirit began to convict. And so we saw that several of the leaders of the Jews came to him and they told him that Israel had a major problem, and that is is that many of the people had disobeyed God's law by marrying pagan wives from the surrounding nations. And Ezra, we saw, was devastated. And he mourned over how Israel had sinned against the Lord, And in Ezra chapter 9, verses 6 through 15, we saw that he prayed a powerful prayer of confession to the Lord. And he didn't minimize Israel's sin. He didn't excuse what they had done. No, instead, he owned it. And he pleaded to God to forgive them of their sin and to be gracious towards them. And in chapter 10, which we're going to look at today, we're going to get to see the people's response to, to, to Ezra's challenge. And we're going to see in it a, a powerful illustration of how seriously we need to take 
our sin and how far we need to be willing to go to make things right with the Lord. And so the chapter begins in verses 1 through 4 by describing Ezra's plan to resolve the impurity. So chapter 10 verse 1 says, Now while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. So, so remember here that, that, that what's going on here is chapter 10 is picking up the story from, from chapter 9. So, so remember that when Ezra first uh, learns about Israel's sin, he's there in the temple courtyard, and he begins to, to weep and, and to mourn and, and to cry out to God over Israel's sin. And this verse says that as he's there in the temple courtyard praying and, and mourning, that, that, that many people see him and they share in his grief and they all begin to gather around him. And so verse 1 says that, that men, women, and children gathered and there was a very large assembly of people there in the temple courtyard weeping over all that Israel had done. Now, now you might wonder, though, well, why were they so upset? You know, and why are they making such a big scene about this, these marriages to foreign women? That's a big question, right? You know, so, so, so why are they putting themselves in other people's business? You know, isn't your family life, isn't your marriage a private thing that is just between you and God? And, and why, why are they attacking this so hard? Well, it's very important that we understand why this issue is so severe. You know, otherwise, we're going to see this whole chapter as very invasive of people's privacy. And we are especially going to have a really hard time with the solution that, that Ezra decides to enact. So, so we talked about this a little bit two weeks ago, but, but I think we need to review and build on why these interfaith marriages were such a problem that had to be addressed. So, so three reasons this is a big deal. All right, and the first reason is just very simply that God forbade interfaith marriages. God forbade interfaith marriages. And two weeks ago, we saw that very clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 7. That, that when Israel was about to enter the land of Israel, he told them very specifically, do not intermarry with the other nations around you, because they will lead you away from me. And, and, so, and so God had, had not left this unclear at all. It was black and white, they were not supposed to do this. So when they did it, it was a blatant rebellion against what God had clearly said. And folks, it is always a serious matter. When I look at what God's Word says, and I say, no, I'm doing this. So, so God had forbidden it, but, but, but you might enter, well, well, why did God care so much? 
Why did God care if they did this? Well, well, a second reason why it's such a big deal is that interfaith marriages threatened the spiritual purity and faithfulness of Israel. They, they threatened the spiritual purity and, and the faithfulness of the people. So, so I want to emphasize again, as I did a couple weeks ago, that, that God's concern here is not with genetics. It, it's with godliness. So, so the issue here is not, in God's mind, inter, interracial marriage. His issue is with interfaith marriage. And we know that because, you know, in the Old Testament, for example, uh, the, the Bible speaks well of, of marriages to, uh, between Jews uh, to, to Gentiles like Rahab and, and Ruth. But because Rahab and Ruth converted to the worship of the true God. So, so the issue here is not that, that God you know, cares that, that all the races and so forth stay distinct and, and that there's no intermarriage from, from that perspective. No, no, the issue is, is that God wanted Israel to maintain an undivided devotion to Him. And He wanted them to raise their children with that same exclusive devotion to God. And God understood. And I think we can see that there are few steps that they could take that would threaten that devotion more than to bring an unbelieving pagan spouse into their own homes, into their bedrooms, and have that level of intimate relationship. And as well, it was completely naive to think that you could marry someone who believed in a pagan god and think that she is going to raise your children to have an undivided devotion to the Lord. And Israel's history proved that that was so, right? And even the great King Solomon, you know, son of David, author of, of multiple books of the Bible, I mean, the great King Solomon was ultimately ruined in his latter years because he married a number of, of foreign women who worshipped false gods. And God judged Israel. In fact, as a result of Solomon's sin, Israel was divided into two nations and they never were the same again. Because of Solomon's failure in that regard. So, so we have to understand that these marriages are not a minor private issue. They threatened the very foundation of Israel's identity as a people who were devoted to the Lord. And, and that identity was massively significant because of a third reason, which is that God's presence and God's blessing on Israel demanded holiness. Now, God was very clear in the law that if you obey me and you are faithful to me, I will bless you and you will prosper. And if you disobey me, if you reject my word, then, then, then I will forsake you and you will be judged. Now, now, why is God so adamant about that? Well, it's because God is holy. And God cannot be in the presence of, He cannot bless a life of rebellion and sin. Sin always distances us from a holy God. So, so we have to understand right at the outset as we look at this chapter that the consequences of this sin were potentially devastating. You know, particularly at this stage when, when Israel's probably only a, a nation of roughly 50,000 people or so, if they began to intermarry with, with the pagan neighbors around them, and then very quickly they would dissolve into the paganism around them and they would endure God's judgment. 
And if they dissolved into the nations around them, then, then, then all of God's promises to Israel, including the promise of raising up the Messiah among them who would bring salvation to the nations, all of that was at risk. So, so folks, that is very important background to where we're going to go with the rest of our time today. Because, because there's a lot in this chapter that is hard for us to stomach, all right? So, so we have to understand just how high the stakes were. I mean, everything God had promised was at risk if Israel did not address this issue. So thankfully, though, God immediately began to move based on Ezra's prayer. And so verse 2 says that this guy, uh, Shechaniah, we don't really know anything else about him other than this, but, but Shechaniah the Elamite uh, spoke up in support of Ezra. Now, it is interesting that, that the text tells us here that he is the son of Jehiel, the Elamite. All right? so, so the Elamite clan is his clan, and, and verse 26 actually says that there were six people in the clan of the Elamites who were married to foreign women. And in fact, it says that a man named Jehiel was married to a foreign woman. So, so potentially, almost for sure, his father was one of the people who had offended. You know, probably not his mother, probably a second wife uh, later on in life. So, so this issue was very personal for this man, Shechaniah. But this guy, he, he calls the sin what it is. He says, we have been unfaithful to our God. And, and notice his proposal in verse 3. And he proposes, in light of this significant unfaithfulness, that they honor God's commandment by, by, by covenanting together that they would remove these pagan wives and their children from the nation and that they would send these pagan wives and their kids back to their foreign families. Now, all right, that is a hard one for us to stomach, right? You know, and, and there's, a lot, there's several reasons why that's a hard one for us to stomach. Now, for one... God said in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, I hate divorce. And as well, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said, What God has put together, let no man take us under. So, so God had been clear, and God is clear, that He is opposed to divorce. So, so how in the world, if that is the case, would God say that I want these men to divorce their wives? You know, and as well, I mean, if they're going to do this, they're going to break up a lot of families, and they're going to cause a lot of emotional and practical distress for, for these women and, and their children. So we look at that and think, I mean, how in the world can that be okay? How can this be the best solution to the problem? Now, now there's no way around the fact that this is a sticky situation. You know, because God really does hate divorce. And, and we certainly uh, should not use this chapter as an excuse to have a flippant attitude towards the covenant of marriage. And Psalm 127 verse 3 says that children are a heritage from the Lord. They are a blessing. And the law was also clear that fathers were, ra were to raise their children to, to know the law of God and, and to be committed to the Lord, to, to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Of course, Ezra, he believed God's law. He believed all of that. 
And so he understood that this proposal was very costly and very difficult. But, but I think what we have to see very clearly is that he also recognized that Israel's allegiance to the Lord and God's covenant blessings to the nation were all on the line. And he rightly discerned that Israel's holiness, the holiness of God's people, had to take precedence because if he didn't nip this issue right now, it was only going to spread and it was going to lead to further heartache and chaos and difficulty for God's people. Now, I recognize that that's not totally satisfying, right? Like, ah, I don't know if I quite like this. But, but there was no perfect solution to the matter. And I think it's, it's good for us as Christians to recognize that, that, that in a fallen world, sometimes that's how it is. Like, like sometimes there is no cut and dry, easy solution to the ethical dilemmas that we face. And if we try to make it overly simple, like we're just going to look at this one part of God's Word and ignore the rest because we want things to be cut and dry, that what ends up happening is, is that we neglect things that really matter to God. And so, we have to discern what biblical value needs to take precedence in this particular situation and go with it, even though it's hard, even though our stomach might not feel totally good. So, so yes, I mean, this is a, a difficult, difficult situation. But, but I think we, we clearly see that the Bible approves of Ezra's decision. I mean, it speaks, uh, right, it speaks uh, in the affirmative of what he has done here. And, and so if the Bible says Ezra did the right thing, then we should accept it as well. Now, now I do want to clarify, though, that that does not mean that we should imitate Ezra's policy. So 1 Corinthians 7 uh, tells uh, Christians who are married to an unbelieving spouse that they are to stay with that unbelieving spouse in hopes that God will use their witness to, to see that unbelieving spouse and, and potentially children come to the Lord. So, so if you're married to an unbeliever, God is not telling you here to get divorced. The New Testament has different instructions for Christians today, and, and I think what we really have to understand with, with a situation like this is that we live in a very different age from Israel. We are not the covenant people of God in the same way that Israel was God's covenant people. And so, and so the application, all right, there's not really a lot here where we just look at this story and say, okay, we need to do what they did here and do what they did there. We need to understand uh, you know, broader, uh, in a broader sense what is actually taking place. But I think what we can come away from this and really understand, and what we really need to take away today above everything else, is the priority of holiness. And that's important, because we live in a day where a lot of Christians are allergic to that word. We don't like the idea of holiness, and we want to believe in this grace of God that allows me to kind of do what I want and have a good time and not be faithful to His word. But Ezra understood that holiness matters. That sin alienates us from God. And that God is our greatest blessing. 
So, so to be alienated from God through my sin is a horrible thing. And so we need to eliminate every threat to holiness. And we must not allow any sin to compromise the nearness of God and the favor of God. And Ezra here is so committed to holiness in this particular story that, that he is even willing to, to split families and send these women and children away to preserve the holiness of God's people. That's a big sacrifice. And for us, if the holiness of the people was worth that much to Ezra, then, then, then does my holiness, is it not worth giving up a TV show? Or a hobby? Or a habit? That, that, that I pursue in conflict with, with holiness and, and fellowship with God. I mean, folks, we must be willing to go to radical lengths to pursue holiness. Because God matters. And because there is nothing I desire more than to be near to God and to have His favor on my life. And so Ezra understood that. And so did this man Shechaniah and the other people who were around them. And, and so I love the encouragement that Shechaniah gives in verse 4. He says to Ezra, Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. So Shechaniah, he recognizes here that, that Ezra has to lead and no one else can do his job. But what he says that we will be with you all along the way. And, uh, and we will stand beside you. We will support you. That's a great little speech that he gives there. And I think there's some good lessons here for both leaders and followers. That when God calls you to lead, whether it's at home, it's in your office at work, or uh, here in the church, somewhere else, when God puts you in a role of leadership, sometimes it's not easy. And you still have to stand up and you have to lead and, and make the hard decisions and do what is right. And if you're a follower, you can be a tremendous blessing to those who are leading in difficult places by just voicing the type of encouragement that Shechaniah gives. And again, he says, we will be with you. Be courageous and act. So, so there in that temple courtyard, you know, Ezra, Shechaniah, all the other people who had gathered there, that they all resolve to act in accordance with a basic plan. And then verses 5 through 15 describe the execution of that plan. So let's read on. It says, And then Ezra arose and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all Israel take oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they took the oath. Then Ezra rose from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Johananan, the son of Eliashib, Although he went there, he did not eat bread nor drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. And they made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and, and, and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the leaders and the elders, all his possessions should be forfeited, and he himself excluded from the assembly of the exiles." So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter 
and the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That's right, as you have said, so it is our duty to do. But there are many people. It is the rainy season, and we are not able to stand in the open, nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our elders represent the whole assembly, and let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives, come at appointed times, together with the elders and judges of each city, until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jahaziah, the son of Tikva, opposed this with Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supporting them. Now, folks, it's incredible when you read through these verses to see how God began to move among his people. After all, I mean, Ezra is calling on them to do something that is very hard and that is going to have devastating consequences for for all the families involved. But but Ezra prayed, first of all, publicly there in the courtyard. And then verse 6 says that he also fasted and prayed in the private quarters of of this other priest. And then God answered his prayers in, in what can only be described as a mighty revival, a work of God's Spirit among God's people that that is not normal. And God produced in them a a radical zeal for holiness that that, that is only by the grace of God. So first of all, we see that that he begins by rallying Israel's leaders. Now, now we have to remember when we read through this, that, that when Ezra came to the land, a king Artaxerxes had given him authority. To, to enforce the law of God and to teach the law. So, so he's got some royal power behind him here that matters. All right. So, so when it says uh, in verse 7 that he made the leading priests take an oath, he's using that authority. But, but there's no indication that there was any resistance among the people. And, and therefore, verse 7 does not say Ezra made a proclamation. It says they made a proclamation. So God is inspiring here an unusual, united resolve to confront the issue. And then God uses their resolve to rally the entire nation. So so they make this proclamation and they tell all the men that they need to appear in Jerusalem within three days. Now, now the land is not very big, so it wasn't necessarily, uh, that was not an unreasonable time to make the trip, but, but that is pretty quick, right? Like, drop everything and you all need to be here in three days. You know, and the point there is to say that this is an urgent matter that has to be addressed as soon as possible. And to drive home that threat, or to drive that home, they threatened anyone who did not attend this assembly that they were going to take their property and they were not going to be allowed to visit the temple anymore. So, so that'll get your attention, right? I mean, Ezra here is urgent and he is aggressive in attacking this issue. And so all the men arrive in Jerusalem, and, uh, and, but, but God here, he did, didn't make it easy for Ezra. You imagine, imagine Ezra's position this day when all these guys come together. So first of all, uh, we, we read in the text here that it is, 
It is the ninth month. It's the 20th day of the ninth month. So, so that means that Ezra had only been in Jerusalem for four and a half months. So some of these men who came to the city, they had probably never seen Ezra before. They had never, never interacted with him. He had had no opportunity to build credibility and trust with these guys. And now he's got to lead in a really difficult way. And then as well, uh, the ninth month is also uh, comparable. It's the same time of year as our month of December. So it is the rainy, cold season of the year. But, but God's going to give Ezra a beautiful, sunny, warm day to, to have this assembly, right? No. I mean, it's rainy and it's cold. And so imagine being Ezra. You know, I, mean, I, I, mean, I was reading through this and I'm thinking about our outdoor services back in 2020 and we had a few toasty ones. You know, but nothing like this. You know, so Ezra stands up to speak. There's probably several thousand men in front of him. Most of them have never met Ezra before. It's raining. You know, it's probably windy. They're all standing out there miserable because they don't have an auditorium or any you know, climate-controlled environment to have this meeting in. And so he stands up to speak. And yet God is moving. And verse 9 says that before Ezra even began to speak, the crowd was trembling. And it doesn't say primarily because of the wet and the cold. They're trembling because of this matter. So, so the men, the, the, the people who are gathered, they understand the weight of this moment. And then in verses 10 and 11, Ezra delivers a, a pretty simple and direct message. He tells them, you have been unfaithful to God. And it's noteworthy that, that he says that, that they had not just been unfaithful to God, he says that they had added to the guilt of the nation. And I appreciate that because you know, so often when we sin, we're quick to talk about how we're the victim. You know, if someone hadn't done this to me, you know, then I wouldn't have done this, or God really owes me this, or, or, or if God really loved me, He would take care of me this way. But what's happening here is Ezra is very conscious of how Israel had sinned against the Lord for generations. And they did not even deserve to be in the land to begin with. They deserved the wrath and judgment of God. So, so the very fact that some of them had been able to come home was in and of itself an incredible mercy of God. And yet here they are, threatening that mercy, trampling on the grace that God had shown them. And he recognizes just how dependent they are on God's mercy and how much that mercy hung in the balance. And therefore he urged them to confess their sins to the Lord and to prove their repentance by separating from their foreign wives and from whatever other ungodly alliances they may be had. So again, imagine the scene. You know, Ezra stands up, you know, I'm sure confident, ready to go, but a little bit nervous. And he, and he gives his challenge, and he looks out you know, in the midst of the rain and the wind and the cold, not sure how everyone's going to respond. But incredibly... Look at their response in verse 12. All the assembly replied with a loud voice, That's right! As you have said, so it is our duty to do. That's incredible, isn't it? They're united. They're not throwing tomatoes at him or, or angry. They don't make excuses about their sin. They don't fight with Ezra. 
You know, and, and they didn't say something like, well, that's great, Ezra. I hope you have fun fixing that. No, what do they say? They say it is our duty to fix this. Now, God is moving in some incredible ways. But then they get really practical in verse 13. And, and they say, you know, this is important, but, but Ezra, it's raining. And this is a big problem that's going to take a long time to solve. And I, and I think when we look at verse 13, we shouldn't see this as them whining and complaining and wanting to get out of the weather. I mean, they did want to get out of the weather, and you would too if you were standing there. But, but what's primarily at stake is that they recognize that this is a complex situation that needs to be handled carefully and deliberately. But, but they also want to get out of the rain. So, so they wisely propose that the leaders or the elders of all the communities, that they stay back and they work together with Ezra to come up with a plan to, to resolve the issue. And then each community, each, each, each city, uh, would, 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 would come together and handle the cases in their particular community. And I think that's, that's really good, right? Because, because every situation is going to have its own unique complexities. So, so if you just have... You know, some rubber stamp solution. This is what we're, you know, bang, bang, bang. This is how we're solving each issue. Then you're going to end up causing a lot of unnecessary harm. But they want to make sure that every situation received proper attention. And I have to think that part of every situation receiving proper attention was making sure that these foreign wives and their children who were sent away, that they were rightly cared for as they went back to their families. And then notice their goal. It says in verse 14 uh, that they would work carefully to resolve each situation until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. Now, so it's not just Ezra that recognizes the severity of the situation. They understood the severity of rebelling against God and the importance of restoring God's favor by confronting this sin. Yeah, and that's, that's an attitude that, that, that I want to cultivate in my heart. That, that when I sin, I don't dismiss it, excuse it, downplay it. That, that when I sin, I recognize the evil of my sin and I want to address it. Now, sometimes I look for when I'm you know, forced to, uh, to confront sin or get involved in, in various counseling situations. You know, it's so discouraging when, you, when you're trying to counsel someone when you're trying to deal with a sin issue, you know that, that when someone has sinned against God, they've sinned against a spouse, they've sinned against another brother in Christ. And you can see from the outset that, that all they're concerned about is minimizing the personal damage and the personal discomfort of their sin. You know, so they're trying to make excuses. They're trying to downplay it. They're trying to run from what has taken place. And that's not what they do here. They, they recognize the significance of what has taken place. And they are wanting to own it. Now, now I do want to be clear all right, in, in saying all of that, that we can dwell on our sin in unhealthy ways. And, and, and the point is not that if you've sinned against God, you've got to beat yourself up, you've got to hurt yourself, and, and you somehow have to atone for your sin by, by how emotionally distraught and upset you get. Because right? forgiveness is of the grace of God. But, but folks, we also have to recognize that our sin offends God. 
And when I sin, I need to own it as my fault, and I need to aggressively pursue reconciliation. And that's what they did here. And incredibly, verse 15 says that only four men out of several thousand opposed this. Now, now can you imagine that ever happening in our nation? You know, like a leader stands up and gives a proposal and only four guys disagree? That's crazy, isn't it? You know, and yet God gives an incredible unity here among the people as He is at work. So, so God's Spirit is producing incredible conviction, resolve, and unity. So God really blesses, even in the rain, even in the cold, and the people respond well, and then everyone goes home. And finally, verses 16 through 44 uh, tell us about how Israel responded. It says in verse 16, but the exiles did so. And Ezra the priest selected men who were heads of fathers' households for each of their fathers' households, all of them by name. So they convened on the first day of the tenth month to investigate the matter. And they finished investigating all the men who had married foreign wives by the first day of the first month. Among the sons of the priests who had married foreign wives were found of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Jozadak. Right? So Jeshua, of course, is the guy that led the first return. And his brothers, Messiah, Eliezer, Jerob, and Gedaliah. And they pledged to put away their wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. Of the sons of Imer, they were Hanani and Zebediah, and of the sons of Haram, Messiah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah. Of the sons of Pasher, Elioni, Messiah, Ishmael, Nathanael, Jazabad, and Elisa. Of the Levites, there were Jazabad, Shimei, Kaliah, that is Kalita, Pathahiah, Judah, Eliezer. Of the singers, there was Eliashib, and of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uriah. All right, now, I'm not going to read through the rest of these names for my own sake as much as anything. And so they, they go, it goes through all the lists there. And so the text tells us that, that a few days after the assembly out in the rain, now all the men who, who would lead the process gathered together with Ezra there in Jerusalem. They talked about what needed to be done. And you have to imagine that they probably you know, kind of came up with some, a framework of how they were going to handle these situations, some guiding principles that they would use to, to, to look at each particular scenario. And then they went home, and they went to work solving the issues in their community. And in verses 18 through 43, I list all the men who had disobeyed God's law. So how would you like to be on that list? You know, for, for millennia, in God's inspired word, your name is listed as one of the guys that disobeyed God's law. Not exactly a hall of fame, is it? But, but here they are, and there's not a ton of significance for us in this list. Uh, but there are just a couple of things uh, I think worth mentioning. So first, it is noteworthy that verses 18 through 24 begin the list with the priests who had disobeyed God's law, and then it works to the Levites, and then finally to the temple singers. So, so Ezra wants to emphasize that, that these people who were in spiritual leadership, they did not get a free pass. Now, as James chapter 3, verse 1 says, teachers will incur a stricter judgment. So, so, the, so the judgment here really did begin at the house of God. Ezra began with the priests and the Levites. Now, of course, it's sad, isn't it? You know, here's these guys. I mean, they spend their, their lives in the temple. 
They spend their lives in, in service of the worship of God, offering sacrifices and, and leading the nation in worship. And yet, from a statistical standpoint, the priests and the Levites were the worst offenders among the people uh, who were there in the land. You know, it's a good reminder to us you know, that just because I'm serving Jesus, just because I'm involved in ministry, does not mean that I am protected from being deceived by sin and disobeying God's law. You know, don't ever think because you're busy serving the Lord that, that you can't fall. Because these guys, that was their life. And they blatantly disobeyed God's command. So therefore, verse 19 says that, that, that all the offenders among the priests had to bring a sin offering to the temple. Now, now the law would have demanded that, that everyone who had done this would bring a sin offering, but, 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 the, but the priests had to take the lead. And so the text mentions that they brought a sacrifice. And then verses 25 through 43 list all the offenders from the rest of the nation. And, and in all, we're talking about 110 men who had violated this law of God. Now, now you might hear that and think, well, 110? And that's not very many in, in a congregation of roughly 50,000 people. So, so why, I mean, why did they make such a big deal out of 110 guys? You know, why not just kind of sweep this under the rug and forget about it? You know, and we make similar excuses sometimes. Well, it's just a small thing. It's not that big. You know, or, well, I'm doing so much for God over here, and I'm investing so much energy for Jesus, so certainly the Lord doesn't care if I've got this one little thing over here that's not right, but it's my one little thing that I can have in rebellion against Him. And we do We do that. But, but Ezra didn't see it that way. I mean, he believed and the people believed that the fierce anger of God was upon them. That's not something to be trifled with. This had to be resolved. And that's exactly what they did. And verse 17 says that the entire issue was resolved in less than three months. Now, that's pretty incredible. You know, so Ezra saw a problem. He went to the Lord with that problem. He planned, and he executed his plan. And, uh, and you know, because of that, you know, I, I've mentioned before, I mean, Ezra, even into the time of Christ, was revered as a spiritual leader, as someone who set a direction for the nation of Israel that lasted for centuries. And we don't really, I mean, really, we get, we get I mean, the book is named Ezra, but we don't read anything more in the book of Ezra about him past four and a half months of his arrival in, in Jerusalem. Now, the book of Nehemiah uh, talks about him some more, but, but this is the last word that we have about this man in this book. He, he dedicated himself to bring spiritual reform, and God used him in marvelous ways. So, the question then is, well, what is the point of all of this for us? And to put it simply, the point is, don't let anything come between you and God. And we all like to think that, that, that my sin is no big deal. Or, or, or we might think at times, well, my sin is a problem, but the consequences of resolving it, that's just too much. You know, I've listened to, to a lot, and of course, I mean, we all do it in our hearts at times, so, so I'm not immune to this, but I've listened to a lot of people over the years 
You know, make excuses about you know, why, why doing what God says is right is just too hard. So they can't do it. Or, or if they really own up to their sin, the consequences are too steep. And so they don't want to obey. But, but this story loudly declare, declares that God does care. He is holy. And He demands the same of us. And, and then this story declares that I need to be willing to obey Him at any cost. Because nothing in my life is more precious than the nearness and the favor of God. His presence, His favor are worth infinitely more than than any sacrifice that you could make for Him. So so I want to urge us to see the infinite worth of Jesus. And, And in light of His glory, as the song says, to let the things of earth go strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. And as well, I want to emphasize that, that we must see all of this through the lens of the Gospel. I mean, Israel here, they, they could not fully atone for their sin. I mean, they, they, they had to put away uh, these foreign wives, but, but they also had to bring a sin offering. Because, because just getting rid of the sin was not enough. They had to bring a sin offering. They had to seek grace from God. And of course, those sin offerings that they brought were only a shadow of the perfect sacrifice, the complete sacrifice that Jesus would someday provide on the cross. And His blood is the only payment that can fully wash away our sin and bring us into a right relationship with God. So so yes, I mean this story is a powerful picture of the fact that sin separates us from a holy God. You will never be righteous enough on your own to be right with Him. But but please do not leave thinking that you can somehow earn the favor of God by by just getting rid of your sin, cleaning up your life, and all of a sudden, boom, God accepts me because I'm such a good person. No, a true saving relationship to God is only available in Christ. So if you have never believed on Christ, then then today, fundamentally, you, you don't just need to clean up your act. You need to confess to the Lord that you are a sinner, repent of that sin, and place your trust in what Jesus did and be born again. And once you are saved, pursue the holiness of our text based on a strong gospel foundation. If you're in Christ, your soul is secure. And nothing can separate you ultimately from the love of God. So don't forget that. But at the same time, Don't forget either that your sin absolutely can affect your fellowship with God. If you're running around and you've got rebellion in your heart against God, don't walk into church or walk around your office and act like everything between you and Jesus is just great. When you are clearly disobeying what He has said. So, So lean in on your new life in Christ and do battle with sin. Maybe today God's Spirit's convicting you about something that that you have been tolerating in your heart and and you've just been dismissing, excusing, not really trying to overcome. And you need to recognize the evil of your sin, repent of it, and cry out to the Lord for grace. Do that today. And then keep fighting for holiness because you love the Savior and because there is nothing you desire more.
than the nearness of God and the favor of God on your life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this chapter. And Lord, it's certainly a difficult one and a hard one, and yet it is true. And uh, Lord, I pray that, that all of us, that, that your spirit would press home to our hearts the beauty of Christ and the blessing of, of the nearness of God, the favor of God on our lives. Oh, Father, I pray that we would desire that above all else. And I pray, dear Lord, that we would be willing to go to any lengths to resolve our sin, to confess it, and to be right with you. Lord, I pray for any who are here today that do not know Jesus as Savior, that, Lord, today they would be born again and leave with the, the, the certainty of that relationship. And for those of us who know you as Savior, God, help us to, to not tolerate any sin, but by your grace to, to do battle every day, to confess, forsake, and pursue you because we love you and because we desire you above all else. In Jesus' name, amen.